0: 1 Samuel, chapter 16, verse 7. We begin a five-part series today entitled, Your Life Matters. We're going to talk about family and where these identities come from, a natural home and a spiritual family. 1 Samuel 16, 7. And this is God speaking to a prophet who thought God was going to choose the the best-looking guy, the tallest guy, the one that had the charisma and the good looks to be the next king of Israel. And God chose the most unlikely guy who wasn't invited to this little uh, ministry session. He was overlooked, undervalued, obscured, keeping the sheep in the backside of a desert. His name was David, and nobody picked him. But God picked him. And then God tells the prophet, let me tell you how I think. He says, the Lord does not look at man and look as man sees, for God looks—man looks on the outward appearance, but the Lord looks on the heart. We're pretty easily impressed by an outward look. Now men are visual, so men look—when men are on the prowl looking for a gal, a potential wife, we, we certainly—we're attracted visually first. But it better go a lot deeper than that, because uh, you got to live with somebody a long time. And you want to make sure what's on the inside is every bit as good as what's looking on the outside. So God looks the same way. He said, I'm looking at your heart, not the outward appearance. In this country, we are obsessed with image. Preachers are uh, some of these TV shows, The Preachers of L.A., The Preachers of Detroit. I think, oh, this sucks. Everybody's got to have their little glamour girl image, all right? A girl was born in 1959 that changed everything. Her name? Barbie. Yep. A recent survey said 70% of women felt depressed, guilty, and shameful after looking at a fashion magazine for only three minutes. Now, hopefully, we are smart enough to know that most of those pictures are airbrushed. I, in my long life, I have had opportunity to engage celebrities, a few movie stars. I even had one 30 years ago send me a sports car on a flatbed from Malibu, California. And uh, it was a vintage old thing, and I kept it a year or so, and I gave it to someone else. But uh, I'm, I'm speaking with some experience. One of them was on Baywatch, and I told my wife, "You don't have to worry about me. I saw her. I saw her without makeup. I saw her at 8:30 in the morning, and there, there wasn't one lustful thought in my mind." I said. That one you see is four hours of makeup and brush and a little bit of of a lot of care. And I said, folks just don't look like that normally. And and so we airbrush. They can make your hips thinner. They can make your thighs thinner. They can make your your bust bigger or whatever and take fat out from under your arms. Now by the way, there is absolutely nothing wrong with nip and tuck, okay, please, for crying out loud. If it'll help you, do it. Uh, but the point is, if you're obsessed with that, and that's where you're going to get your whole identity, n- now you're crossing a line. Not, not, uh, I think everybody wants to put their best foot forward. I flat do. I don't want to be some old slob up here. I, I, I don't care if I'm 85. Or I want to I look good and be as presentable as I can to be an old guy. I want to be in shape. I want to take care of my body. I don't want furniture disease, my chest fall in my drawers. I don't want any of that. So I'm just trying to say there's balance, but I'm, but I'm saying that's, that's not what makes you uniquely you. Men and women uh, try to gain important success and self-worth by an outward image. The average American woman is five foot three and 150 pounds. The magazine model is 5'9 and weighs 109 pounds. Now can I speak as a man? I speak not as a prophet nor as a believer nor by inspiration of the Holy Spirit. This is just man talk. I want something to squeeze. I don't want to, I don't want to sleep with a stick. I don't want bony maroney. And I think most men feel the same way. John 10 verse 10. Oh, Lord, I can't wait to see the emails. All right. Says the thief comes only to steal, kill, and destroy. So, the enemy wants to distort your real identity. His first words to Eve in the Garden of Eden were, hath God said. God revealed Himself to Eve and Adam, told them who they were. They were created in His image and likeness. And the first thing the enemy tried, you're not really who God says you are. You don't really have what God says you have. Don't believe what God says. So you either have to believe what God says about you, or what the culture, or what people, or what." The, the, the movement for the moment happens to be, what it says about you or what you think about yourself, you have to decide, who am I going to believe? The most powerful opinion you have is the one you have of yourself. I, no matter what God thinks about you or says about you, if you don't believe that, then the most powerful opinion in your life is the one you have. The Apostle Paul says, by the grace of God, I am what I am. And when you say, I am, boy, there's some confidence and boldness. There's some authority in that. You you clear away the fog of ambiguity. You flat know who you are and whose you are. You're, You're difficult to manipulate. You're difficult to patronize. You're difficult to hold back because you have clear identity. Everything that holds you back in life has its root in a lie about who you are. The enemy is afraid of what you might do or become if you ever discover who you are in Christ. See, he doesn't want you to believe that because you're going to wake up and be bad to the bone. Your authority is connected to your identity. If you were raised in a family that says you're nothing, you'll never be anything, you'll never have anything, you'll never amount to anything, that erodes your confidence for the future. That can mark you for life. And it has many children. So I have to believe that my authority comes out of, I belong to God. God's made declarations about what He's given me. I have the authority to bind and loose. I'm not a passive victim. I can engage the enemy in a fight. I can resist the enemy. And and I do. But I remember waking up to that as a dumb little Christian. Uh, Our little favorite verse in the church I went to when I was young was, For we wrestle not. And we quit right there, for we wrestle not. Now, we didn't wrestle nothing. We just took everything the enemy threw at us. So, the Bible tells us to stand fast, to resist the enemy. He will flee from you. I give you authority in my name. Now, act like it. Talk like it. Believe like it. Don't sit around and be passive when you get a bad diagnosis or something attacks your child or there's a little drama going on in the business. You have have the power of prayer, the name of Jesus. You've got the authority of His Word, His declaration. Use it or lose it. I I don't know how to make you do that, but I remember when I found out I actually had some reasonable authority, I started carrying it. My wife knows the day and the time we both kind of woke up to that, and our lives changed. Everything around us changed. Now let me give you some thoughts about being in this family. God's given us authority to overcome. You're an heir of God and a joint heir with Jesus Christ. You've got a wealthy father. You've got unlimited power in this God who loved you through His Son, Jesus. And He's left you a, quite an incredible estate. He's given you an inheritance, and in the natural, you can write people out of your will. You can write family members. You cannot write an adopted child out of your will because that's taken in law from the Bible. We are adopted by God by faith in Jesus. I'll never be written out of the will. He's bequeathed to me all of the benefits of Jesus that He won at the cross. So I've always got them. I mean, you know, if some of you won the lottery, you'd you'd be walking a little bit different than you did This cold, wet morning, dragging in. You couldn't wait to tell people, well, we've got something a lot better than a lotto, I can tell you that. All right, well, some thoughts about family. You're born into your natural family, agreed? All of you came through a birth canal. Nobody came from a stork. Everybody in this room was birthed by by natural processes into a natural family. Well how do you get in God's family, the church? How do you get into God's family? You get in there by a new birth, a spiritual birth. You get your racial and national identity from your physical birth. If you're born a Caucasian, born African-American, born uh, Indonesian, or whatever, you got that because of a physical birth. Interesting, God says flesh and blood will never inherit the kingdom of God. Your race, your identity, your gender, and fifty cents will get you a cup of coffee in hell. It'll get you nothing. So God says to the great teacher uh, uh, and, and Jewish leader uh, among the Pharisees and teachers, Gamaliel, I mean uh, Nicodemus, you must be born again. You need another birth. you got to be born into the spiritual family by a spiritual new birth. And if I'm born of the Spirit, not of the flesh, then there's no Jew, no Gentile, no male, no female, no rich, no poor. We're one in Christ Jesus. You lose the racial national identity when you become—I'm a Christian, born of the Spirit, led by the Spirit, gifts of the Spirit, fruits of the Spirit. It's all by the Spirit. It's not by the flesh. That makes sense? So, So you've got to be born again. You can't just say, well, I joined the church. I'm going to heaven. No, you must be born again through faith in Jesus. That's how you get to heaven. Secondly, in a family, all members contribute. When my sister Sherry and I grew up in a military family, we, uh, we, we, we didn't have washers and dryers back then. We were the washers and dryers. So the only issue, we'd flip coins, we'd barter, we'd try to negotiate and bribe each other. Who's going to wash and who's going to dry the dishes? And So we, were mo- we had an assignment. I had to cut the grass and had to wash the car for my father. We, I, we had to clean our room. How many of you know if you've got kids, you expect them to fulfill some assignments? If you mess it up, you clean it up. If you went in and made a sandwich, clean up the crumbs, pick up the mess, and leave it like you saw it. That's the way I was raised. I'm sorry, that's so wicked today. I, I, I just thought that was normal. But everybody has a function and a place of responsibility to contribute. So in a spiritual family, you're not just a, a bench warmer. Everybody in here, there are people that have gifts of administration. They can just put stuff together. There are people who are gatherers. They can get people to join something, to volunteer to help something. There are people who have a gift of hospitality. There are people in this room who have the gift to make money and have resources, and they fund projects, just as important as anything else. Other people have a gift to sing or a talent. So God gave everybody a gift of help. Everybody's got something, and God expects you in this family to contribute, not just sit and grade, not, not just be a spectator. Be a participator. You're supposed to function. I mean, how bad is it to have a, a foot that won't work, you know, or a broken toe or something? I had a bone spur taken out of my left shoulder two months ago, and, you know, for a, about a week or so, it, it didn't function good, and I missed it. And I sleep on my left side, and I couldn't sleep on my left side. So I was just a naggy, old, menopausal, <laughs> mid aged man. I, I just was grouchy. I didn't like it. And I kept pushing weights, and now, now I'm fine. But I want all these parts to work. How about you? So God looks at you and says, I want all these parts to work. If someone's going to be whole and mature and accomplish what i got for it, everybody's got to pull you apart. Nobody has equal responsibility, but everybody's got some responsibility, and everybody has an assignment. Number three, in a family, everybody eats at the same table. There's equality in the family of God. No discrimination. Rich, poor, black, white, Asian, Hispanic, Republican, Democrat, whatever you are, when you're in the family of God, we're equal. We all eat at the same table. If you see me anywhere eating, you can sit at my table. You're welcome to be with me. Number four, in a family, uh, there's a place for preparation for life. It's a place to give and receive love. It's supposed to be a place of safety and encouragement. I didn't come out of that kind of a family. Okay, so I want one. So I said, I'll produce one if I didn't get one. I won't pass on that abuse uh, to my children just because I didn't get it, you're not going to get it. No, no, no. I want to give it. I want, a natural home is supposed to be a place of safety, a place of love, a place to give, and it's supposed to be a place of encouragement. You can do it. Billy, we believe in you. You've got a great future. Ah, Billy, that's not like you. We don't talk like that in this family. That's not who you are. You're destined for something a lot better than that. Encouragement. I don't think I ever had my father ever say, I believe in you. You're going to do great things or whatever. Just a military absentee father, uh, five divorces or something, joy to the world. I think you could suck that bad on your own. I don't think you need a whole lot of training to do that. But I decided I didn't want a life like that, no, you know, no, no big deal, no, no past remorse with my father. That's been dealt with a long, long time ago. But I thought, this is what a natural home is supposed to give you. you. The safest place in the world ought to be home, home sweet home. And the older I get and the more I travel all over the world, ask my wife, the best feeling in the world is coming home. I like to be home. I like to walk around home. I like, I like being home. I still like to do things and go places, but uh, I think it means more to me as I've gotten older. And a home is a place of accountability. You don't behave like that in this house. You pick that up. Give that back to your sister. And we do that. This is a spiritual family. So this ought to be a place of safety for you. This ought to be a place of love, uh, of acceptance, a place of encouragement. I, when you come in here, I know you don't have to come. I want you to feel encouraged, I want you to feel hopeful about the future, I don't want you to be down on yourself all the time, and I want you to be accountable. You know, if you did something dumb, say, I'm sorry. Take responsibility. Don't just quit and run off and leave. And then number five, families to be a place of intimacy where you can be yourself. I think Casey Treat a couple of weeks ago talked about just be you. Be, be you, the good you, not the bad you, but be uniquely you. Our temperaments are different, our personalities are different. My wife has not got the same temperament I do. If she sees you and she met you at the door today, she will remember your body temperature if she sees you in a restaurant next week. I, if you French kiss me, I won't know who you are i won't remember uh, different would you say Just different and i 'm a more aggressive i'm more reactionary. she'll say, ah, calm down, ah, don't duck." It's a, good, it's a beautiful balance, but we're not supposed to be the same. If two of us are identical, one of us isn't necessary. I'm always, I'll take care of it. I'll fix it. I'll, just, just the way my wiring is. You don't beat people up because they're different. God loves the diversity. If you're a strong woman, be a strong woman. If you're a, a more domestic-oriented, be that. No one's better than the other, but just be the best you you possibly can be. So, uh, Be yourself. If you wear skinny jeans and you're a millennial like our praise team and young adults, God bless you. I couldn't get my thigh in them skinny jeans. Okay, fine. But I like you. Relax. Be yourself. You don't want to wear a coat and tie? Don't wear a coat and a tie. If that's part of your culture and you feel comfortable, wear it. But for crying out loud, you don't get your identity from that. Just be you. So I like that, the freedom to be yourself, you know? I came out of a high steeple, few people, formal downtown church, and uh, I was so choreographed I hate it. In the summertime at 106 degrees, if you want to wear Bermuda shorts and flip-flops, it's fine. Just wear something, okay? Just wear something, that's all. Not for me, but for others. I, I don't. Uh, Number six, a family is a place of fun and joy. You know. If you got a happy home, it didn't. You, you have problems occasionally. There are some serious things, and an occasional crisis. But overall, there ought to be some fun, laughter, and joy. Don't you love a happy family? Well so our family, our spiritual family ought to be a place of joy and happiness and celebration. It's not somber all the time, for crying out loud, it's joyful. Happy people. I, I love a happy family. And sometimes, no matter who you are, you have a crisis. But in a crisis, families stay together. They fight through difficult times to get beyond to a better place. Number seven, it's a place you fight for each other's reputation. Don't talk about other people until those facts are confirmed conclusively. Protect one another in their absence. Uh, I remember when, just this is just a quickie, uh, when Nicola Hood was running for district attorney, uh, he was called everything from a criminal to to everything but a Christian, and uh, doing a little bit of slander on him. And everywhere I went, I stood up for him. I spoke out for him, because I have intimate uh, friendship with him, and I know him and the family inside out. And I, I took him to a very reputable minister with global appeal, who had been kind of poisoned because he wasn't in the same party, political. And I said, I'm bringing so-and-so to see you. Now you and I are friends. You trust me. I'm bringing my friend to you. And we sat in that office, and I said, this is a man of God, this is a man of faith, this is a good husband, a good father, this is a tithing, serving, believing, learning Christian. He's brought more people to Jesus than probably anybody in your church has. And I tell you, just because of that party label, he values the Word of God, he values human life, and he is a wonderful person know Him. And he interviewed this man, changed his mind, supported that man, stood with him, and now that man is our district attorney. But it's funny how people can slander you over something in your past that's not who you are. And by the way, I'd really appreciate it. Once in a while, you'd stand up for me. I'd throw, a, throw a bone my way. I'll fight for you. I'm not going to let anybody pick on my family. I'm going to—you and I can Get alone, private, and have a little talk. That was the dumbest thing you ever did. What, what are you thinking? That's family. But somebody else outside the family picks on you. You you stand for your family. That's an honorable thing to do. My sister and I fought like cats and dogs. You touch my sister, I'll nail you. Now we've grown up. We have children, and we thought, what did we fight about? I don't know. I don't know. Just sibling rivalry, I guess. I have no idea. And then last, family's a place we celebrate another member's success. We rejoice with those who rejoice. When somebody does well, when somebody is successful, when somebody is fortunate to buy a home, when somebody else gets a promotion, we don't criticize and talk about how we deserved it more than them. We celebrate. If you can't celebrate somebody else's success, God won't give you yours. It, it, let me tell you something, that may be why you're not being promoted. Uh, honestly, you, you, you could look and say, yeah, I wish that had happened to me, I wish I could have that opportunity. Well, celebrate and rejoice with those other people, and it takes the lid off and God can bless you. You're in the same line. So, so if, if there's something wrong in you if you can't celebrate somebody else's promotion, although you didn't get it, or somebody else who hit the big time in some way and you didn't, hey, God loves you. Celebrate with them. It Make sure there's nothing that's going to hinder you from any kind of a promotion with God. Don't let people control your life you haven't seen in five years who might even be dead and you still burn with rage and anger and vengeance towards them for the wrong they did you. Let no man imprison you with that unforgiveness and anger because forgiveness is not what you do for them, it's what you do for you. It's to keep you healthy and well and to prevent the enemy from coming into your life. If you stay bitter for 14 years because a husband left you or something, that's a horrible thing. Left you with children. Didn't leave you with much money. God will either provide you with a better job money or a better husband and a better provision for it. But if you sit, soak, and sour for 14 years, nobody will want to be near you, and you've given the enemy access into your health, into your life, into your children. And Jesus over and over said this, that we must forgive, not on the basis of they're worthy of it, not because of feeling or emotion, it's a choice. It's an act of my will. It's not my—my feeling is to nail you, to get even with you, and I can hurt you better than you hurt me, but I can't. Yeah, I can, but I won't. It's a choice. On the cross, Jesus said, Father, forgive them. They know not what they do. What if He'd have said, i flat get you when I come back? (laughs) So it had to be a choice. Forgiveness isn't a business deal, a partner who swindled you and cut you out, someone who cut you out of the will. You've You've got to forgive and get on. I'm not going to let any of those things hold back my future and limit what God can do with me. Nobody has that much power. I'm not going to let them. I believe God's in control, and if God allowed you to do that, He's still going to work it for my good down the road somewhere and for His glory. So I'll never walk around sucking my thumb being a victim, and God doesn't want you to do that either. Now, let's take a quick look at a guy in the Bible who had a dysfunctional family. His name? Joseph. His family got mad when he had a vision. God spoke to him as a 17-year-old boy, established the fact that one day when Joseph would become known as successful and powerful and rule, that his family would bow down to him. They didn't like that at all, and they went into a rage. And you know, sometimes it's not people outside the church, it's people inside. When you have vision, that get really, really angry, and that's why it hurts so bad. Family members mad at you because you got a vision and want to achieve more than they do jealousy, envy. Joseph's brothers grew to hate him because of the favor of God over his life. And if you're one of these gullible Christians who thinks that when God puts favor on you, everything's going to be peaceful, you're in for a big shock. The favor of God will bring the attack of the enemy, too. And he'll use people to do it. And so they planned to kill him. Talk about a dysfunctional family. And they finally sold him into slavery. He was hated, rejected, sold into slavery. Uh, What's your problem today? And for all purposes, you'd have to figure this dude's future is out, like a broken light, gone. But in the face of negative family experiences, here's some things Joseph did that allowed him to fulfill his purpose in God and that you and I can do to make you unstoppable. Genesis 39, verse 2 through 10. He was continually cultivating character that was worth respecting. Now the Lord was with Joseph so that he prospered, and he lived in the house of his Egyptian master. When his master saw the Lord was with him, and that the Lord gave him success in everything he did, Joseph found favor in the eyes of of, uh, Pontifer and became his attendant. Pontifer put him in charge of his household, and he entrusted to him everything he owned. From the time he put him in charge of his household and all that he owned, the Lord blessed the household of the Egyptian because of Joseph." The blessing of the Lord was on everything Pontifer had, both in the house and out in the field. So Pontifer left everything he had in Joseph's care and Joseph in charge. He did not concern himself with anything except what he's going to eat. Now Joseph was well-built and handsome, and after a while his desperate master's wife took notice of Joseph and said, come to bed with me. But he refused. He said, with me in charge, my master doesn't concern himself with anything in this house. Everything he owns, he's entrusted to my care. No one is greater than this house than I am. My master has withheld nothing from me except you because you're his wife. How then could I do such a wicked thing and sin against God? And though she spoke to Joseph day after day after day, he refused to go to bed with her or even to be with her." Uh, You know, you think life's different today? Nah, it's not. It's the same old, same old. He could have had a victim mentality. He could have said, shoot, i got a chance of a lifetime here. Nobody's in this house. I run everything. Nobody will know anything. I could see him on Oprah doing an interview. Well, she was the only one who showed me love and affection. My brothers hated me. They wanted to sell me into slavery. They almost wanted to kill me. So it's not my fault. Can you hear him now? But he didn't. He recognized he had an opportunity. Transfer blame to the past or grow up and face the future. And the choice to grow is the point at which you move on in your life. There has to be a place you get beyond your disappointment, betrayal, hurt, whatever it was, there has to be a point you want more, and you want to go beyond it and leave it behind. Otherwise, you're going to be stuck forever right where you are. If in secret you behave appropriately and cultivate character that can be respected, God will promote you publicly. Joseph became number two man in Egypt. So when Joseph said no to Pharaoh's wife, God said yes to Joseph's future. So he was a man who could be trusted with a little, now he could be trusted with much. I always reflect that insight. Can I be faithful with what God gave me? It's not if I don't have as much as somebody else. What Everybody in this room's got something. Maybe you have a job you don't even like. Can you be faithful with it? Can you be faithful with what belongs to another man? My attitude was, if he drops his bill full, I look at nothing. I serve every other man I ever worked for. I treat it just like it was my own. Can he trust me with a little? Then God says, I can trust you with a lot. If he can trust you with a little money, he can trust you with a lot of money. If he can trust you to be good character with a little, he'll give you more. But if he can't trust you with a little, he'll destroy you with more. So you become the only lid in your life. You become the limiting factor in your life. If you can't be faithful with what belongs to another man, well, I hate this job and I don't, it doesn't matter. Can you be faithful with it? Why would God promote you if you can't? Jesus himself said, if you're not faithful with what belongs to another man, who will entrust you what's yours? Here's the answer none, nothing, not Na- nothing. What's nothing? Nano, nada, nada. I ain't, I'm bilingual. Okay, number two. Look at this. Joseph flourished wherever he found himself. Genesis 39, verse 2. The Lord was with Joseph so that he prospered, and he lived in the house of the Egyptian master. Genesis 39, verse 19. When the master heard the story from his wife about Joseph attempting to rape her, a false accusation, she said, look, this is how your slave treated me. He burned with anger. Joseph's master took him and threw him in prison, the place where the king's prisoners were confined. But while Joseph was there in prison, the Lord was with him and showed him kindness and granted him favor in the eyes of the prison warden. We keep reading this, and the Lord was with Joseph. All this bad stuff keeps happening, and the Lord was with Joseph. Joseph can't read that. It hadn't been written yet. Are y'all, you get, you get a benefit he didn't have. We get to look back. He, he, he hadn't even seen this written. This just happening to it. So the warden put Joseph in charge of all those in the prison, and he made him responsible for everything done there. Joseph spent no time reflecting on what had been done to him. Instead, he took opportunity to be successful with what was in front of him. He was going to bloom where he was planted, no matter where you put him. Instead of sucking his thumb, feeling sorry for himself, he said, okay, if this is my lot in life, I'm going to excel with excellence and get the best I can out of it. If you live your life through the lens of disappointment, disillusionment from the past, you will miss the opportunity sitting right in front of you. If you can't flourish where you are, it's unlikely you'll flourish anywhere else. you know, if you can't be an overcomer with what you got, it won't change if you move to any town in Montana. So life is hard for everybody. Success is determined by what you do with what's available to you. And do it now. Everybody has a different deck of cards. God deals differently with all of us, but everybody's given something. So take the little you have and be faithful with it. Take the job you don't like yet while you wait on a better job and give it excellence. Give it a little bit more and then some, a little bit extra. So Joseph wasn't being promoted because of his race or his hairstyle. He was being promoted because he was the best everywhere they put him. They put him in a household. He ran that sucker, and he built trust. He ran the prison pretty soon. He wasn't slacking off. He, sp- he got it all done, managed everything with excellence. The, the warrant said, hey, I don't need to get up and work. I'm going to let this guy run everything. He gets an open cell, satellite television, wait rooms open, computer, i-fi, network. He gets it all. Well, why wouldn't you trust a guy like this? You can turn your back on the man. Are you that kind of a man? Your business employer can turn his back on? Well, moving right along. Number three, (laughs) Joseph developed a compassionate heart, and that's got to be tough when you've been through what he's been through. Genesis 40, verse 4, the captain of the guard assigned two prisoners to Joseph, and he attended them. After they had been in custody for some time, each of the two men, the cupbearer and the baker of the king of Egypt, who were being held in prison, had a dream. And each dream had a different meaning. When Joseph came to them the next morning, he saw their faces were downcast. They were rejected. So he asked Pharaoh's officials, what's wrong? Why are you look so sad today? Well, we both had dreams, they said, but there's no one to interpret the dream. Joseph said, do not interpretations belong to God? Tell me your dream. Now, here's the interesting thing about this guy. In all of his problems, he notices two other people are having a sad problem, and he cares about it, and he involves himself in it when he's got enough pain of his own. Rejection is one of the deepest wounds of the human heart, and pain will do one of two things to you. It'll sensitize you to the plight of others because you've been there, felt it, and overcome it, and you'll care a little bit more about other people, or it'll harden your heart and never allow access to your life at any level. You build walls instead of bridges. I'm telling you, of all the things you can get you don't want is a hardened heart. You do not want that. But that thing that's caused you more pain than you've ever known, if you give that to Christ and by the work of the Holy Spirit, He'll turn that to your advantage and cause you to feel what others are feeling because you've been there. You can speak to somebody and say, I do know how you feel. This is what happened to me. And because you've come through it, you're able to give hope to someone else. The Bible says comfort those with the same comfort wherewith you have been comforted. So, hey, when you see somebody down, you may not be able to solve the problem, but you can care. You can say, I care, I'm praying for you, and encourage them no matter how bad it is. See, don't allow pain to harden you. Let it make you better instead of bitter. So Joseph retained a compassionate heart and was able to see on the faces of the people in prison something's wrong, and he became God's agent to those people in that bad place. Number four. He didn't allow himself the luxury of bitterness. Genesis 45, verse 1 through 5. Then Joseph could no longer control himself before all of his attendants. So he said, everybody leave the pres- my presence. So there was no one in the palace with Joseph except his brothers. And he made himself known to them. And he wept so loudly the Egyptians heard him, and Pharaoh's household heard about it. Joseph said to his brothers—get the picture. They're standing in front of him. They're terrified. They don't know who he is. I am Joseph. Is my father still living? But his brothers were not able to answer him because they were terrified at his presence. They've been captured. They've been accused of spies. It's a setup. They think they're going to either be imprisoned or die. And then to make it worse, the guy they're standing in front of, this Egyptian ruler, says, hey, Jack, I'm Joseph. Joseph. Remember me? I'm back. Can't you imagine how i said, oh my God, he's going to kill us. I, I love to get into the—I don't just read the Bible like that. This is real-life stuff. I'm Joseph. Oh, by the way, the one you sold into Egypt. I hadn't forgotten. I'm not dumb or naive. But his brothers were not able to answer because they were terrified. Then Joseph said to his brothers, come close to me. And when they had done so, he said, I am your brother, Joseph, the one you sold into Egypt. Don't be distressed now. Don't be angry with yourselves for selling me here, because it was to save lives that God allowed me to be sent ahead of you. Dr. Gene Edwards wrote, if in this life the only thing you accomplish is to keep yourself from becoming embittered, you've won a major victory. Otherwise, people own you. People imprison you. You cannot afford to let that happen. You give control of the li- of your life to the one you hate, the one you despise. An ex-spouse running around who, who betrayed you, whatever. You've given him power over your life, and now he, he's not even in it. He doesn't know, know about what's going on. You're killing yourself. You're drinking the poison hoping he dies. You're dying. You see how foolish this is? And so Joseph got over this deal. He got God's perspective. And I think this forgiveness means If I want to eradicate bitterness, the only way I can do it is to extend forgiveness. It's not an emotion. It's not a feeling. It's an act of my will. I choose to do it. Feelings, that comes later. But right now, even the memory of it doesn't go away, but the pain of it does when you have forgiven. If I look back at you done me wrong in my life, I could write a book on hatred and bitterness. I could be on a SWAT team to get you. A a, a hit team, absolutely, and love every minute of it, by the way, in in the flesh, I I would. In fact, I'll get you worse than you got me. Now that's the unredeemed me speaking from the dark side. That's what's in me if you leave me to myself. I'll get you. I'll hurt you. Bad. I got enough wisdom with age now and experience, and coming up in a military family, it ain't no—it ain't hard. But I'm a redeemed believer. The Holy Spirit lives in me. And He says, you ain't going to do that. I'll let you think about it for a few minutes, but you're not going to do that. And I'm not real happy about it. Okay, Lord. that wasn't a joyful, okay, Lord. It was like, okay. I'm putting my, putting my sword up. I just— because, because the consequences are too bad for me. I don't want to limit my future. See, when you hate and you have bitterness, you open the door. The enemy can come into your health, your life, your marriage, your children, and ruin your future, and you've given him the lead. Here's the door open. Come on in. That's why God says that root of bitterness is rotten to your bones. It affects your health. It affects your relationships, and the enemy has legal access to oppress you. Think of that. I don't want that sucker in my life. I want him outside. So I have to forgive. Now, there may be uh, justice. That's correct. Revenge? Illegal. Vengeance is mine, I will repay, says God. So I never get to repay. But just if somebody murdered your child or drunk drive, and you want justice? Justice is correct. It's biblical. But that's not revenge. That's justice. Does that make sense? Okay. I can go further, but I don't want to bore you with that. So it's, it's the capacity to absolve people because of the mercy of Christ. If He can forgive me, what is it I can't forgive? Uh, I, I don't even want to go there. So uh, the biggest challenge I had was my father. Then I've had other challenges with people who, just evil people, with slander and lies and, and distorting truths and whatever, and it's like, oh, but it, it makes me a better man a stronger man, and I'm not a victim, my wife will tell you. I, the name doesn't come up, doesn't bother me, I've I, I dealt with it. Sure, you're upset at first, but it takes a little bit of time, and you choose to forgive somebody. When that comes back to your mind again, you say it again, Father, in the name of Jesus, I forgive so-and-so, I seek no retaliation, vengeance is yours, you'll deal with it, and whatever you've allowed this for a purpose in my life, I thank you, you're going to redeem it for my good and for your glory, I'm moving on in life, and that's exactly what I do. I'm, I don't, I'll let God settle the score. I can't do that. Neither can you. Let it go. Let it go. Let it go. I love that song. I'm sorry. My little granddaughter made me put it on the iPad, so I have to hear it every day in the car. If I pick her up at school or take her to the gym, it's frozen. I can do the whole movie by now, just about. Number five, here's the last one. Joseph viewed his circumstances from God's perspective. Genesis 45, verse 5, And now do not be distressed nor be angry with yourselves, because you sold me here, because it was to save lives that God allowed me to be sent ahead of you. For two years now there's been famine in the land, and for the next five years there'll be no plowing and no reaping. But God sent me ahead of you to preserve for you a remnant on earth and to save your lives by a great deliverance. So then it was not you who sent me here, but God. He made me father to Pharaoh, lord of his entire household, and ruler of all Egypt. You meant it for evil, but God meant it for good. And see, you have to decide. Either God is God, or people have the power to inflict on you whatever they determine. Even Satan has a leash. When Job was under great duress, and he met with God and spoke to Him face to face, he said, I can't touch Job. You put a hedge around him. God says, correct. Even a liar speaks the truth. He said, You can touch him, but you can't kill him. Did anybody hear that? You can touch you. Well, the doctor says it's breast cancer. The doctor says it's ovarian. The doctor says it's stage three. He can touch you, but he cannot kill you without God's permission. I love that. That is give me confidence to faith. Now, if God's if God's ending your life by his will, then fine. But knowing that no matter what comes against you, it can't destroy you unless God gives it permission, gives me confidence to boldly face whatever you have to go through. You meant it for evil. God meant it for good. Every painful moment, every moment of rejection and desperation can be turned by God to the good if you will allow Him access. Last verse, Romans eight twenty-eight, And we know that God works all things for the good of those who love Him, who have been called according to His purpose. Everything is not good. Cancer is not good. Bankruptcy is not good. Divorce is not good. Murder of a child by a drunk driver is not good. But God says, even that, I can redeem it for good in your life and for my glory down the road. Now I have to accept that by faith. And at the moment, you don't feel it. But somewhere down the road, with hindsight, you'll see how God used that in your heart and with other people. Nobody escapes with a green pass, a trouble-free life. Nobody escapes pain. Nobody escapes crisis. Nobody, nobody. This is a broken world we live in. Don't allow the enemy to imprison you with resentment, unforgiveness, and bitterness. And here's a guy determined not to allow his past to dictate his future. And in the end, he became a great resource. For more information on Rick Godwin and product available, visit SummitSA.com and click on Bookstore.